2: Well, I was on Star Trek.
1: Which one?
2: It was the one with the the main Klingon guy with the big eyebrows. And he's having some argument in the foreground, way in the background. There's me and my buddy sitting at a table eating fruit salad.
1: What's in a Klingon fruit salad?
2: Oh, grapes. Bit of melon, (laughs) orange
3: melon. (laughs)
1: Turn your speakers up to 11 because it's time for Too Much Effing Perspective, the podcast that asks musicians and entertainers to relive their most Spinal Tap moments when nothing goes right and everything gets kind of weird. I'm your host, Alan Keller, a comedy writer in Los Angeles and former lead singer of the least heralded Chicago band, The Falling Walendas. And
0: I'm your co-host, Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead and former lead singer of the least heralded Milwaukee band, The Vainglorious.
1: Our guest today is 2002 Rock and Roll Hall of Famer and six-time Grammy winner, Stuart Copeland from The Police.
0: We talked with Stuart about the time he quote-unquote fractured Sting's ribs wrestling over a copy of The New York Times, how many more great albums the police could have recorded if only they hadn't broken up, and why it was necessary to call 911 when Cream drummer Ginger Baker jammed in Stuart's studio.
1: So without further ado, let's go to the tea! M-E-P-SHOW!
3: It really puts perspective on things, doesn't it? Not really? too much.
1: It's too yeah, much I
3: think perspective now.
1: Alex, in one of our recent episodes, the one with Devo co-founder Jerry Casali, he talked very honestly about his contentious relationship with bandmate Mark Mothersbaugh. Yeah, he did. And Jerry told us that when he and Mark started Devo, it was a true art collective. But as Devo got more famous and Mark became the face of the band, Jerry said Mother's got a case of lead singeritis, as Jerry <laughs> called it, and began right. to make more and more decisions without consulting his partner. And the music suffered.
0: It obviously caused a rift that really never healed. Jerry made that really clear in the stories he told us, and you and I were both surprised when... We learned that those guys still actually play together.
1: Absolutely. But you know, this lead singer-itis is really common in rock bands and can screw up a good thing. It either diminishes the music, like I think it did with the later Talking Heads albums, as David Byrne became increasingly dictatorial. It leads to key band members quitting, like Kim Deal did when she left the Pixies for the Breeders, because she couldn't get any of her songs through Black Francis, Mm -hmm. or... It leads to the band breaking up all together like it did with Stewart's band, The Police.
0: Yeah. And based on what we heard, what began as a collaboration of The Police gradually became more and more about Sting as he began controlling the creative process. And it led to a lot of battles between those three guys. Ultimately, Sting walked away and started a solo career thinking he didn't need his bandmates anymore.
1: And you know what's the proof that he's wrong? His solo career. (laughs) (laughs) Because in my opinion, the five albums he put out with Stewart and guitarist Andy Summers are exponentially better than anything he did on his own.
0: Um, Alan, well, mathematics are never your strong suit. At most, it was logarithmically. But in any case, I got to tell you, I am actually a bigger fan of Sting's solo stuff. I love songs like Russians, Be Still My Beating Heart, We Work the Black Seam. Those have a special place and time in my memory.
1: Oh, so you have the same musical taste as my mother. Interesting. (laughs) Um, Okay, to be honest, you brought up my two favorite Sting solo songs in Russians and Black Seam. And just to remember, those were from his first post-Police solo album, so he still had some residual magic there. But I think his body of work since The Police doesn't remotely compare to what he did with the band. I mean, come on, Roxanne. Message in the Bottle, Um, Every Breath You Take. Those are some of the best songs ever. And it goes to show that he needed Stuart and Andy to do his best work. I'm sorry. That's been proven by other musicians, too, who failed as solo artists, like Freddie Mercury did after Queen, Billy Corgan from the Smashing Pumpkins, Mick Jagger, Roger Daltrey. The list goes on and on.
0: Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately for Jagger, he stayed close to the Stones and Daltrey and... Pete Townsend, The Who are still out doing their thing, but it is certainly evident that ego can be a dangerous thing. And that's why bands like R.E.M., U2, and my old tour mates, Radiohead, seem pretty smart looking back. They realized early on that regardless of who wrote a song, the alchemy of the band is what made their music special. And that's why, surprisingly, those bands split their credits and royalties evenly. I didn't even know that about Radiohead.
1: Well, I hope you don't get any ideas from that because... When this podcast starts cranking out the bucks, I want the split to reflect our relative importance to the show, and, you know, 80-20 seems effing fair, don't you think?
0: Uh, Sure, Alan. You are nearly 80, so I'm happy to give you 20.
1: That's not what I meant, Um, but (laughs) I I have to get in hair and makeup now, so call me when you're ready. I'm going to be in my dressing room, okay? Alan.
0: That's not the dressing room. That's your bathroom. Listeners, while Alan suffers from a bout of podcast hostitis, let's get to our talk with the great Stuart Copeland. But first, a short break.
4: Well, hey, podcast listener. My name is Vince, and I'm the host of a show called The RR Show. It stands for Reddit Readings.
1: And now a man who scored music for films like Wall Street, Rumblefish, and Talk Radio, as well as TV shows like The Equalizer and Dead Like Me, police drummer, Stuart Copeland. Stuart, you had a really great insight that the hierarchy in rock and roll is based on chronology, so that the Foo Fighters look at you as being a legend, you look at Ringo Starr as being a legend.
2: You know that hierarchy thing just keeps it simple. We don't have to get into a pissing match about how many tickets we sold or records. We don't need to Google each other at the dinner table. We just know, you came before me, therefore I bow and scrape before thee. And then, you know, like dogs, as soon as they establish the hierarchy, they all relax. Even if you're at the (laughs) bottom or the middle or the top, you know your place, we're all good.
1: Well, it's interesting. We had Dan Wilson on from Semi-Sonic and he got to write with Carol King. Dan said to her, so how do you feel about the Beatles covering Chains, your song? I mean, the most influential band ever covered you. And she goes, well, to be honest, they list me as an influence.
2: You got me there. What time did the Beatles ever do a song that they didn't write?
1: They did it a lot in the early days. I mean, uh, Twist and Shout is the Isley Brothers. Rollover Beethoven is Chuck Berry. Uh, Honey Don't is Carl Perkins. You Really Got a Hold On Me is Smokey Robinson. And Chains was written by Carol King and her husband at the time, Jerry Goffin. Chains, my baby's got me, me locked got up in chains. In,
2: not yeah, but wait a minute—was Carol King even born then?
1: Carol King's way before that. She did Respect, Rita Frank. Here. Yeah. Oh my God, she's now done. Now I
2: got some respect. I, I only ever heard of her in the context of the early '70s. You know, her own solo album she came out with, which was boring. <laughs> and now she wrote Respect. Now I got some.
1: She and her husband wrote so many of the incredible hits from the 60s. Wow. So you have to look that up. So
2: that picture of her on the front of her first solo album, Tapestry, she looks <laughs> like the same age as everybody else, but <laughs> must have had some airbrush in there because she's clearly <laughs> a lot older than she looked on that album cover.
1: Well, she did start when she was seven, so.
2: <laughs> well, I, similarly, I share that same distinction. The first police album cover for America, they airbrushed that to make us all look 12. <laughs> Really? Outlandos? Well, look at that Outlandos demur. There we are, all, you know, like three tweens.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, this is Alan here to fact check myself. Very embarrassing that I would tell Stuart Copeland from The Police that Carol King wrote Aretha Franklin's hit Respect. Of course she didn't. Otis Redding did. But. Carol did write another Aretha hit, You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman, as well as Locomotion, The Monkey's Pleasant Valley Sunday, James Taylor's You've Got a Friend, The Animals Don't Bring Me Down. I mean, she actually has over 110 hits that made the Billboard Hot 100. So, Stuart, if you're listening, I was wrong about respect, the song, but not about the respect that we all should pay Carol King. So, please accept my apologies back to the show. I read your entire book, Strange Things Happen. And you wrote, there is an old joke from the film, This Is Spinal Tap, where the band goes on stage and greets the audience with, hello, Cleveland. Only it isn't Cleveland. Truth is, it might as well be. To us, it feels like the same city night after night. That is a moment in Spinal Tap that pretty much 75% of our guests... Recall, right, Alex? Yeah.
2: Even if they haven't seen the movie, they know the gag.
1: Yeah. That's right. That's part of the Spinal Tap wisdom, right? But in 2007, in Turin, Italy, you had kind of the same getting lost to the stage moment, right?
2: Oh, yeah. Would you like to hear that story? Yes, please. Yeah. Well, now it was uh, whatever the heck year it was, and we were deep into the tour, and we're playing a crumbly old football stadium. Now, football stadiums are designed so that the team comes out of the side of the stadium into the center of the field. Well, rock bands, they come in at one end of the stadium, so we leave our dressing rooms and get into a little bus to drive around <laughs> to the other end of the stadium, and we're driving, and suddenly we're chatting away. It's actually Sting's birthday that day, and we're all a happy band going to play a happy show, and... By the way, two hours later, we were screaming at each other. Uh, but it was still, at this point, it was still Sting's birthday. We're a Cheerful band, And we look out the window of our little bus, and we see that we're going on an on-ramp onto a freeway. <laughs> and we look out the window, and the giant stadium, which blocks out the sky, is receding. By, uh, um, what? And it's rush hour, by the way, around whatever time it is we go on stage. So then we're getting back off the freeway on the next off-ramp, and we're crossing over the bridge, and there's a stadium coming back up. Well, that was an interesting little detour. By the way, we have full-on police escort. <laughs> do, 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 do. The lights going, the you know, cars in front, cars in behind, motorcycles on either side. The mighty police shall take the stage by way of some diversion. Okay, so we're back off the off-ramp, we're back into the stadium parking lot, and we're driving up the parking lot, and we take a left at the top of the thing. Drive for a little bit, then we take a right in the parking lot, then we stop for a minute, then we take a left and drive, and now we're lost in the parking lot with the police, like, the motorcycle guys and everything, lost in the stadium parking lot. And the crackle comes over from the tour manager, Uh Billy, who is our guy with a dry sense of humor. So, is the band going to play a show tonight? <laughs> We're now 20 minutes into our set, stuck lost in the parking lot. The entourage stops. The lights go out. The sirens stop. The motorcycle cops are kind of standing there looking Italian. And um, <laughs> I can just imagine the two guys in the front of the think like, up the catsong. And uh, finally, we make it to the gig. Unbelievable. Maybe <laughs> half an hour late. And it just turned out. That coincidentally with that wonderful cheerful story was the night of the worst screaming match of the tour on stage in front of 80,000 Italians and probably one of the best shows we ever played. but from considering the noise that came off the audience, I guess those those Italians they do like their uh, gladiator fights, but uh you know it was a understandable. We get there. We get into whatever song that was. When the world is running, whatever. (laughs) Anyhow, Andy takes a guitar solo, and he lights it up. I mean, you know, that guy takes a guitar solo. He takes it up. Okay, I confess, the tempo might have just gone up a tad. Oh no! So that when Stingo comes back to the verse and he's got to sing his song, he's got to like spit the lyrics (laughs) out too fast. He can't, you know. Unknown to me, that those actually lyrics sort of. Means something. <laughs> I can't hear what he's shouting at. All I just see is the back of his head. Anyhow, uh oh, he's not going to like this. And sure enough, he's looking daggers over his left shoulder and I'm just blasting away there. And uh, pretty soon his daggers are turning into, you know, scud missiles and he's wait shouting, you know, yeah! and I can't hear him. He's off mic as he's turned around facing me, but he's screaming at me and he's showing me <laughs> With the back, just play the backbeat, and he's showing me the backbeat like that, you know, <laughs> in front of 80,000 paying oh, customers. Guys. Uh, and so now, <laughs> unfortunately, this does very little to calm me down. In fact, now I'm screaming, you fucking, are you fucking, can't! and my cymbals are pinned like that. The drums are just going click, clack, because I'm just hitting them too hard. And now I've got Jeff, my guy coming over the earbuds uh feeling a little happy tonight as i'm just trying to yeah i've got white balloons popping behind my eyeballs just a red mist of fury and the italians are loving it man this is better than lions going at it you know and uh, so we burned down that stadium happy birthday Stingo! <laughs> good times good times
1: yeah you have a notoriously rocky relationship within the police. You actually broke Sting's rib once, didn't you?
2: Ah, uh, in jest. <laughs> yeah, in jest. <laughs> it was a hairline fracture. That was Shea Stadium. After the sound check, he grabbed for my New York Times and I wanted it back. And we ended it, you know, meanwhile, every journalist from England is there. For England, it's a big deal when an English band, even though I'm Merkin, it was a London band. When an English band plays Shea Stadium, they like that. It's like the Beatles conquering America. And so they're there. After the sound check, we're clowning around, more like the monkeys. You know, we're a little fistic, little tussle over my newspaper. I wanted it back. Pretty soon, I've got a knee applied to his rib cage, and <laughs> oh, we're both no. on either end of the New York Times. <laughs> then suddenly, it's like, oh, God damn it, Copeland. Jesus Christ. And um, anyhow, we played a great show. But the next day, he got an x ray, and okay, hairline fracture. But we were laughing.
0: That is fun. It's always the big things, right?
2: Well, it's a great story. Yeah. Yeah. The police used to fight so hard, they used to break each other's ribs one time, (laughs) you know. Yeah. Except half the stories have him breaking my rib. And look, (laughs) dude, if you're going to make a myth, could you at least have it be the right way around?
1: You know, I was the front man, and how I kept my bands together was by allowing the musicians in my band to have agency over their parts, right? You're the expert at drums, you do the drums. You're the expert at lead guitar, you play lead guitar. I was really surprised when I was watching a lot of videos that Sting pulled like a McCartney Harrison thing. He was really getting his opinion in on everybody's parts, didn't
2: he? Yeah, and the the times when it was most annoying was when he was right. (laughs) <laughs> yeah and that's understand. when the homicidal urge i couldn't resist it you know my fingers would be reaching for that jugular no but at the beginning we were codependent and he'd pull out a song if we gave it any attention at all gosh you guys like my song cool yeah. okay five albums in he's written 10 hits now and by the way he's no longer a novice in the studio at the beginning andy and i knew what we were doing in the studio sting it was his first time but after you know two or three albums he's a quick study that guy And so he writes the songs at home, at leisure, with a very clear idea of the whole picture. He kind of knows how to use a drum set, how to use a guitar, and how to use the bass. And so he arrives in the studio, and any deviation from that pristine perfection that he's conceived in his mind is a struggle. It's not a collaboration anymore. It's a compromise. And I'm impressed that he stuck it out with these compromises for five albums. The first two were kind of easy, Zenyatta, the third album, was when the cracks began to show, and I could see him just getting frustrated, and me getting frustrated. He came over and started telling me what to do on the drums, like, are you kidding? That's where it began, and it just developed over the next Ghost in the Machine, way out on Montserrat, this paradise that we soon turned into a living hell, and then... I was surprised we even got into the studio for a fifth album, Synchronicity.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, tying that back to your story at the onstage kerfuffle in Turin, I tour managed this band called the Bodines long ago, and the singer and guitar player fancied himself to be a drummer as well. And so I remember the drummer telling me on the side saying, you know, when Kurt, the singer, puts his foot back behind him and he's tapping on the stage, it's not because he's digging the beat. He's trying to be yeah. my metronome. So um, yeah, heard that kind of story before.
1: Oh yeah. But Stuart, you are one of the great drummers ever, and you know I love Sting. I love The Police. But there's so many experiences in the history of bands where the front man doesn't appreciate the alchemy of the unit. Right.
2: Well, he's facing the other direction to give him some slack. He's not looking at the band. He's looking at the audience. He's working the crowd. There's something going on behind him, which may or may not be to his liking. But his focus is forward. The drummer and the bass player are behind him. Okay, he can kind of see the guitarist out of the corner of his eye, but the rhythm section is like kicking him up the ass or not.
1: I love it. I I was watching your documentary, and I can't remember what the song is, but it looks like an old Charlie Chaplin film. You guys are playing this song so fast, nailing it, but I'm like, is this sped up? Because this is incredibly, (laughs) let's say, energetic.
2: Yes. Well, there's one shot of Andy looking, and you can quite clearly see the words coming out of his mouth. Too fast.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The crux of the movie, this is Spinal Tap, getting back to our thing, is that this is a band that's overstayed its welcome. And... The police obviously did not overstay their welcome. They ended at their peak, right, with Synchronicity, their fifth album. I'm just wondering, you know, a lot of bands kind of keep going into the sunset and start churning out inferior material. How many more albums do you think you guys could have cooked at that quality?
2: None. Really? You know, we worked it, we did it. It was perfect. And when we came back 20, 30 years later and pulled it off the shelf. It was untarnished. Mm. And of course, we drove each other nuts straight back into it. At first, (laughs) we're thinking, ah, we're older, wiser now.
0: Mature.
2: Yeah, mature. There you go. But no, straight from the first rehearsal, we're wondering what planet that other guy's on.
3: Oh,
0: wow. (laughs) That's amazing. And
2: by the way, when we get out of the band room and we go for dinner, get along great. Always have. It's only... The music, which is weird, considering the only thing we ever argued about was the music.
1: Well, I'll quote you, Sting and I can be good friends as long as we don't talk about music.
2: <laughs> yeah, really, that's the way we are now. That's why yeah. there's no more police tour, because I enjoy getting along so well. Yeah.
1: <sighs> that is so funny, because I read your book last night, and I'm like, is this 2007 or is this 1984? It's the same stuff 20 years later, right?
2: Well, which book are you talking about? My current book, Police Diaries? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Not the current book, Strange Things Happen.
2: Okay, Strange Things Happen, all these stories of the reunion tour. Yeah. By the way, my current book is about the time before that, The Starving Years, and that's about 1977, 78, uh, with a little of 76, when we didn't have any of those big songs. He hadn't started writing yet. Andy joined about halfway through that. We were already at it for a year before we ran into Andy. And Sting and I stuck together, just codependent, uh, as a work and rhythm section. And before we had the music that we were going to play, we hadn't figured out the reggae thing. We hadn't started writing songs yet. But just as a rhythm section, we had a pocket that is the holy grail of all ensemble playing.
1: Well, talking about those early years, a great Spinal Tap moment happened back in 1978 when your solo project, Clark Kent, had a hit, Don't Care. And you performed it on Britain's really important show, Top of the Pops. Yes. And of course, you don't actually play live on Top of the Pops, you mime your song. And so you had Sting, Andy, and your brother Miles performing with you in masks.
2: And gorilla masks. Because it was a secret identity. Nobody knew who Clark Kent. Is that they're wondering is it Frank Zappa? Is it, you know, whoever? And it wasn't. It was the drummer in this dodgy fake punk band uh, going nowhere called the police um you can google it top of the pops and old sting goes there and andy too and you can spot him right away no gorilla mask can conceal that charisma
0: <laughs> well now they made a game show out of that the mass singer so they that's right yeah you off 40 years later that's right we were before our time
1: Speaking of your brother, Miles, he is a prominent manager in the music business and founded IRS Records. And your late brother, Ian, started a booking agency, FBI, Frontier Booking International. And with you being a recording artist, you three basically made up a vertically integrated music conglomerate. That's a unique relationship. How'd you guys get along?
2: I got along fine with both of my brothers. Ian, I was probably closest to. He was the next sibling up. But those two, Miles and Ian, fought like cat and dog. Mm. Because Ian would sign a band like R.E.M. that he put together. They were, one of them was his office boy down in Macon, Georgia. And he goes to Miles, look, you got to sign this band. And Miles goes, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't hear it. I don't get it. If you're not signing R.E.M., I'm not booking Squeeze. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Miles would sign these bands to his record label. And Ian's like, say, I'm not booking that. You're kidding me. I'm not going to call up any of my promoters because this band sucks. They fought amongst each other while I'm the youngest sibling, just watching them go at it and trying to stay out of trouble.
0: Uh, that's interesting.
2: Here's another moment for you. Okay, so my brother had his agency, Frontier Booking International, or otherwise known as FBI, and he's working late one day, and his receptionist knocks off at six o'clock, and he's so he's answering the phones himself. Phone rings. He says, hello, Ian Colvin, FBI. And like voice on the other end goes, no, this is the FBI. <laughs> and uh, they're saying, what are you doing, you know, impersonating a federal officer? And Ian says, hey, look, you send a guy over here. And if you find anybody in my office impersonating FBI agent, arrest him on the spot and drag him out of here. Wow.
0: Although we have presidential papers
1: in the bathroom. In the toilet. Yeah.
3: Right.
1: So IRS records. FBI booking, and your band, Clark Kent. There seems to be a theme of power and the deep state going on here. And I assume it has to do with your dad, Miles Copeland Jr., who is one of the founders of the actual Central Intelligence Agency, also known as the CIA. Yeah. Now, it's common knowledge that your dad was a spy. But what really blew my socks off is that when you lived in Beirut, Lebanon as a kid... Your family was friends with the family of Kim Philby, the most notorious double agent in the history of the Cold War. And you were even friends with Harry Philby, Kim's son, weren't you?
2: That's right. And uh, after his dad disappeared to Russia, the family was destroyed and I never saw Harry again. I haven't been able to find him. He has vanished off the face of the earth, you know, for the Copelands it's all a, a laugh. Daddy was a secret agent man. Ha, ha, ha. He deposed governments, imposed dictators upon the people of far off lands. Ha, ha ha We can laugh, kind of. But their daddy was a traitor. Yeah, right. And they're very Pucka English family. He was going to a nice boarding school and everything. And they were destroyed. And I never saw them again.
0: Wow, that's extraordinary. Was
2: that his original wife or his second wife? Uh, no, that was Eleanor, and he left here and the kids behind. He was on his way to a dinner party with my parents, among others, and didn't show up because he went down the harbor and jumped on a Greek ship headed for uh, Sevastopol and was gone. And for two weeks, everyone knew, where is dad? And my dad and his cronies, they knew where he was, or they figured there was another British spy. They knew there was another leak, and it had to be Philby. But he was one of my father's best friends.
0: Ah, it's so painful.
2: Yeah. And he was devastated to have been lied to. And and they were kind of coming to that conclusion. Then when he disappeared, they all knew. But us kids, all we knew was that something was weird going on with the grups. Wow. That is
1: so incredible. I mean, that is a crucible moment in the Cold War. And you were right there. That's jaw-dropping to me. Um did your dad have any Cold War spinal tap moments that he shared with you that you could share with us without having us all murdered later? Honestly? Yeah, I
2: could tell you, but I would, then I would have to kill you. Uh, Go for it. Okay, here's one. Uh, it was actually before I was born. Okay, But cool. my mom is pregnant with my brother, Ian, and my father, he was a Syrian, Damascus, Syria, and the colonel who they had installed as uh, El Presidente was beginning to put on airs and thought that he was actually in charge of the place. Mm. And it was starting taking calls from the Ruskies whose job was basically, they didn't build anything up. Their job was to destroy our network of potentates, dictators, despots, and assholes (laughs) so that we could have the oil coming to the West rather than North to the East. It was all about the oil. There was no morality. Mm. There was no introducing democracy. None of that. It was the oil, period. Let's keep it simple. So they needed a regime change in Syria, and they've been working up two or three different options of different colonels, uh, but they picked one They said, here's what we're going to do. We get a rent-a-mob to come and invade an American diplomat's house. Oh, wow. It creates a ruckus. They have to call out the army, and while the army's out, they take over the radio station in the palace and put in our guy, uh, Abdul Shahab. And so... You can guess which American diplomat was chosen for this honor.
3: Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs>
2: and so my mother's packed off to a mountain village to, you know, see what happens. And my dad's in there with a couple of his buddies. And the rental mob's late. And then shots ring out. Oh, wait, 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 wait. They've got guns? Uh, that's not what we paid for. Uh, and so it's getting violent. And there's, you know,
0: unscripted.
2: <laughs> yeah, they're in the house there. And there's shots coming through the window. And My father's on the phone with Beirut, which is on the phone with Washington, and he's talking about what's going on. You know, guys, guys, this is out of hand, but I got to hang
1: up now. They're shooting at me personally. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Well, so your dad also was a jazzer, right?
2: Yeah. I got his trumpet right here.
1: Oh, yeah. Cool. (laughs) Well, that's a very important point because I looked at the CIA website, Stuart, Uh, Your dad is, I I guess, still under deep cover because this is what they wrote, and you tell me if it's true. Miles was fairly successful scoring gigs, playing with and composing for the likes of Ray Noble, Benny Goodman, Glenn Miller, Stan Kenton, Dave Brubick, and Buddy Rich.
2: I do not believe that all of those names are true. (laughs) Uh, And he would probably have been more proud of the Dorsey brothers. Hmm. The only other one that's true is um Glenn Miller, which was brief. And for my dad, that was sort of like a credit of playing with the Bay City Rollers or something. Not bragworthy. But the Dorsey brothers, he was very proud of that. He did not play with Buddy Rich, but I got to introduce my dad to Buddy Rich because they're both the same generation. Oh, that's wow. And my dad raised me up on Buddy Rich, which I didn't really get big band jazz. You know, my buddy Stanley Clark tells me that's because it's wrong jazz. Hmm. white big band jazz is wrong jazz uh except for buddy rich and so i was able in later years to take my dad to see buddy rich at the ronnie scott's club in london amazing show he does his thing then his band are all young juilliard cats you know then we go backstage and all of buddy's band are all lining up to get my autograph observed by my father (laughs) and for my father that was okay My son is worth some. Okay, I get it.
0: He's made it, yeah.
2: Yeah, he's made it. But then him and Buddy, two generations older than anyone else in the room, they're head-to-head talking about asshole club owners and band leaders that they both knew. And, you know, so they got along really well. But you have forced me to divulge another distinction and brag in my life. How many drummers can you name who have given their autograph to... Buddy Rich. So Buddy wow. Rich asked for your autograph? Anything? Anybody? Yeah. Wow. He looked like he was chewing on a gerbil at the time, and it was for <laughs> his daughter, Kathy. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh boy. Well, he's a notoriously prickly guy. Have you ever seen any of the videos of him?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah out yeah. his so band. shouting at the band.
1: So oh, this happened at the Grammys?
2: Yeah. Uh, you know, they're melee backstage, everyone's standing around. Here comes Buddy Rich. There's Buddy Rich. Oh my god. am oh, my... he's walking this direction. I'll just stand here and I'll be cool. Be cool. Be cool. He's walking up He's walking up. He's walking up to me. And he's talking to me, I can't even hear what he's saying because you know it's Buddy Rich, for God's sake. <laughs> then he gives me a something. I don't know what it was, a beer mat or something. I don't know. Like, Here, can you sign this? And it was for his daughter. But uh, with my hand trembling, I put in, I am just a nothing, Stuart. <laughs> That's not what I put in. Well, I do have a little more cajons in that. I go, oh, okay, motherfucker. You want my <laughs> autograph? Buddy, <laughs> buddy, you want my <laughs> autograph? Here you go. <laughs> You know, never mind the Grammy we won. Screw that. Yeah, I gave Buddy Rich my autograph.
1: In front of your dad? No,
2: he wasn't there that that time. Oh. And what I did not do was get his autograph, which I regret.
1: Well, it was obviously a pure power play on your part.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
4: like our concerts on The Corner series.
2: Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The Corner of Gray Street.
0: At the 84 Grammys, it was kind of a police Michael Jackson battle royale, right? Synchronicity was nominated for a Grammy for the album of the year, as was Thriller. Oh,
2: Hang on, let me just check my Grammys, sir, and see who won.
1: <laughs> yeah. Podcast audience, this is an audio of Stuart looking at his Grammys. Michael took that one for
0: Thriller. Summon a bitch. However, Every Breath You Take and Billy Jean were both up for Song of the Year, and Every Breath You Take took that Grammy. So, Well,
2: I have enormous respect for the music of Michael Jackson, but Every Breath You Take is the better song. And it has been proven by its weeks on the charts, the number of remakes. That song is one of the greatest songs of all time.
0: Yeah. There's quantitative data to back that up. I think you guys and MJ were both there. Were there any interesting interactions with the King of Pop that night?
2: We were introduced. He seemed a little
0: distant mm-hmm.
2: uh, with a
0: weird kind of high voice. Right. Presumably you shook hands. Was he wearing the white glove? speaks very quietly. Yeah? I don't recall any gloves. Oh, interesting. Okay.
1: Well, I think the period's really interesting too because it's like the talkies, right? Like when the talkies hit, some actors faded. But when MTV hit and video became a big part of the music experience, some bands really took off, like you guys. Because we were so pretty. You guys were pretty.
2: That was it. You know, not many people know this. Our first success as The Police was as a boy band it was the tweens of london that picked up on us first Hmm. and we were all over like the tween teeny bopper magazines with the three blonde heads looking all pretty and now that we achieved some respectability from our actual depth of personality and musicianship (laughs) we can now (laughs) be bragful about our origins as a boy band yeah it's funny
1: Well, it's also very interesting, too, that you did not get the respect of the London scene because you were not pure punk. Well, this is before that. Oh, this is even before that?
2: Wow. Yeah, before we were a boy band, we were a fake punk band. Now, the boy band was not by choice. I mean, we'd struggled to be a punk band because that was the only scene happening. That was the only gigs that were happening. The only excitement, the only buzz was in the punk scene. So we had to pretend to be a punk band. And we struggled and struggled. And it wasn't until we got to America and started to verge into what might be called Prague, where much more musicianship, more chops, more stuff going on musically than hardcore punk. And we began to find our sound and everything. And then we're over in America and we get a phone call. Hey, you've got a hit back in England. Cool. (laughs) And we get back to England. And this is also recounted in my new book, The Stuart Copeland Police Diaries, where after all this struggle and travail, we get back to England, and we finally have achieved success on the fronter of Tween Magazine.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's hysterical. That is awesome. We had Joey Santiago from The Pixies on, and he's very turned off by the entire punk genre because of the orthodoxy. I mean, you think it's this oh, yeah. individuality, free spirit, nope. be yourself. Nope. No, it's a rigid set of rules. Absolutely, And the police didn't fit that. Well, we tried. You tried. Well, they busted us because when Andy joined, he
2: made the big step, which was to cut his hair, which was a big deal. That was you're leaving all that you knew before. And the next time you show up with short hair instead of long hair, you have joined the enemy, right? You have become one of the Thargon's who are the barbarians at the gate. And so when Andy joined the police and he cut his hair. We did a show with actually two guitarists. It was one of the few shows we played with both guitarists. And he comes out on the stage. He got the right hairdo. Cool, cool, cool. But he had not yet adjusted his collection of pants. <laughs> he went out there with short uh. hair and bell bottoms. Oh, oh no.
0: That is too
1: funny. unbelievable. So you're like in my favorite period in music history. I think 77 to 80 is just unbelievable and i'm wondering how that impacted the police in terms of raising the bar of what you had to put out like i'm just going to read you in 79 nme put out the best albums of the year this is a sample obviously regatta de blanc which is my favorite police album fear of music talking heads squeezing out the sparks graham parker xtc drums and wires the jam setting suns this is one year elvis costello armed forces the specials first album Joe Jackson, I'm the Man, and Bowie Lodger. Wait a minute, is Blondie not on there? B-52s? Yes, the B-52s that were on there. I don't think Blondie's on there.
2: They were amazing. They amazing. were one of the best bands of all time.
1: Don't you think that made the police raise their game a little bit? I mean, you know, you look at during the Salon in the 19th century in Paris, I mean, all the great artists that happened at the same time, they influence each other just like the bands of the 70s influenced each other.
2: Well, we realized that we would have to join the stampede before we could lead it. But the reason you picked that period as the best time of all time is because you were a human being and human beings are like ducks. <laughs> and the thing that we share with ducks is that when a duck busts out of its shell, it uses this little beak push out and it comes down and it greets the world. And the first warm being it sees is mama. <laughs> and that's how ducks decide who mama is. Well, us humans... When we get to 16 and we start to burst out of our little family shell and look out at the world and we need some rebellion going on, the first hairy guitar player we see or singer or purveyor of rebellion, that's your daddy. And for me, it was Jimi Hendrix. And for you, it was the Ramones and all those bands you just mentioned.
0: I never saw in any of your credentials, Stuart, that you're a a waterfall ornithologist. So that is an extraordinary revelation on this show. Hey, what- (laughs) <laughs> a waterfowl ornithologist, a duck expert.
2: <laughs> I just made all that shit up. I'm no expert. <laughs> I, I'm
0: just a fabulist. You are a fabulous. So you and I, Stuart, were both tour managers. Oh, yeah. I love this joke from Monty Melnick, who was the Ramones tour manager. He said, you know what the difference is between a tour manager and a toilet bowl? Oh, dealing one asshole at a time. Toilet bowl only takes shit from one asshole at a time. That's exactly right. That's right. Yeah. So can you share a crazy story from when you wore the two hats of both drumming in the police and tour managing the police? Well, tour managing the
2: police in the early days was all about just booking the trucks and dealing with administration and booking the gigs and selling records off of my big brother Miles's phone book. He had a record company, and he would let me go in there and use his phones and, more importantly, his Rolodex, and, of course, his advice and stuff. But basically, I was in there hustling. And uh, we take the ferry from England over to Holland, and we place play a couple shows with the electric chairs and the damned. And then we're coming back, and Sting and Andy are on the bus, and I'm in the custom shed doing the paperwork, the carnet. You have <laughs> right, to declare right. every piece of equipment. It's serial yeah. number, its value. They check <laughs> it going in, they check it coming out. This is before the common market. It was such a pain. I'm there doing the paperwork and there's a hassle. And oh my God. And I look up in and, and the, the custom shed, it's got a window behind the guy, and I look, I could see the ferry is leaving. Oh, hello. No. <laughs> uh, well, I guess I just missed the boat. Oh, damn. So Sting and Andy are on their way home, and I'm stuck in Holland. I get on the next ferry, and it's like a three-hour whatever ferry ride. Then I get to the British Customs Shed, and uh, hello. First of all, I'm American. What are you doing in England? I live right. here. Where's your work permit? Um, dog ate my work permit. <laughs> and by the way, that guitar you're carrying, I was carrying one of Andy's two guitars. Mm. what guitar is that now is this the strat or the (laughs) sg i don't know (laughs) customs guys don't like that no they sure don't there's not much funny about that story but it's a story
0: yeah well you know i've had the experience of crossing with bands from the u.s into canada for example oh yeah same thing yeah very much the same thing and i remember being with radiohead crossing from uh, detroit into toronto You know, being at the customs booth in the middle of the night. Everybody had their papers, fortunately, in place. So we weren't getting any hassled. But our bus driver, as they gave passports back, they're calling everybody's full name.
2: And this is where you learn the full names
0: of all your crew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cornelius? You're kidding. (laughs) Yeah. Tom Edward York, uh, Jonathan Richard Guy, Greenwood, et cetera. And the bus driver, they held up his passport. They said, John Wayne Morgan. Uh, And the whole band just starts to sort of titter in the background, like we have John Wayne driving our bus. You know, you mentioned being these blonde heartthrobs and I will post on Reddit to get questions from fans. So I posted in the police subreddit, what should I ask Stuart? And Matt Sean Ryan 20 commented, ask him if the police really dyed their hair blonde to be in a chewing gum commercial. And I know the commercial happened, but it sounds like you guys were already blonde. Well, I was kind of
2: dishwater blonde all along. When I was a kid, I was platinum blonde. But, you know, as with my children, they all start out platinum blonde. By the time they get adulthood, they're kind of dishwater. Mm. So I stuck my head in a bucket of peroxide and uh, bleached it because that's what the punk thing was, you know, so I could look like Billy Idol. Right. The other guys were not convinced until we went to do the famous Wrigley's Chewing Gum commercial, and the art director says, uh, we need a punk band. Part of the gimmick of the image was the the agent's on the phone, he's got you know, a a punk band chewing up his office and whatever, whatever, he pulls out a stick of chewing gum and everything's fine. (laughs) Okay, well, we need a wilder-looking punk band. Let's peroxide all their hair. So they stuck Andy and Sting's head in a bucket of peroxide, and so was born the three blonde heads. That is nuts.
1: That's awesome. I want to ask you one more question. I was in a band called the Falling Walendas. Cool name. Thank you. And our drummer was a guy named Todd Zuckerman. You may know him. I think you judged a competition with him at Guitar Center or something. But anyways, I wanted to get a geeky drum question. This is what Todd asked. And I had to actually go on Google Translate and go to the drummer input to figure this out. But he says, why did you go with two different hoops on your 70s chrome over brass pearl snare drum? die cast on top, triple flange on the bottom. To me, I don't know what that means, but that was meaningful to Todd.
2: I know exactly what he means. (laughs) And uh, that same drum is right here. Your folks can't see it, but uh, here it is. You can hear it. Wow. (laughs) That snare drum right there is the one that I played in curved air all the way through the eight years of police on every police record, on every police tour. Amazing. And I do not know. I've got a picture in my book Police Diaries by Stuart Coban, uh, whatever it's called. Uh, thank you. Um, there's a picture of me in my home studio in 1977, and there it is in the corner over there. I, I, I know that I had it in 1976, and I still got it in the year of Our Lord in 2023, but it just had a sound, and I don't know why it had two different hoops. And I would lose sleep. You know, am I going to lose this drum? Oh, my God. It's the only one. Whenever I'd break a skin during a show and Jeff would switch it out and I got the other one, which is supposed to be the same, but it just ain't the same. So eventually when Tama drums said, hey, let's do a signature snare, I said, reproduce this. And I sent the drum over to Japan and they analyzed the metallurgy, the angle of the rims, every aspect of the drum. And they would send me prototypes. Nope, nope. Nope, 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 till finally they got it. Hmm. And uh, I sleep well at nights because I've got 10, any number I want of this drum, which is for sale all over the world. In fact, here it
0: is. That's it. Before we let you go, Stuart, I got to ask you about one of my favorite bands, The Doors. Oh, yeah. When I was in junior high school, they were absolutely my favorite band. You were out with, if I'm not mistaken, Ian Asbury from The Cult as the singer, right? Original Doors members Ray Manzarek and Robbie Krieger, and you were on drums. And I think there was a lawsuit from John Densmore, the Doors' original drummer at that time. There's got to be a spinal tap moment from touring with the legendary Doors.
2: Well, I was a big fan myself. They were my daddy. When I busted out, the Doors were right there. And so they are deep in my DNA. And uh, to play with him was a huge honor to be sitting oh, there with with Ray Manzarek, just playing that keyboard parts. And Robbie, I'm playing with the doors. I can, and it sounded just perfect. And Ian Asprey actually was doing a pretty good job impersonating uh, Morrison. I couldn't believe it. One problem was that I was so absolutely the wrong guy. As much as I grew up on Densmore, I'm not him. And I got my own thing which by that time was so established that I'm kind of tough for me to be somebody else. (laughs) And Densmore does trance. He just gets a groove going, and it just carries you forward. Me, I do explosion. And so it didn't fit. We were not a good match. Honored as I was, we were not a good match. And so it didn't last long. And then Densmore started his suit, which meant that the whole use of the band name was a problem, and they called me into court as a witness for Densmore, but it was all resolved, but they have their differences. And sadly, Ray is gone. Robbie is in excellent shape, and so is uh, Densmore.
0: I feel like Robbie and John may have reconciled at this point.
2: Yeah, they have, absolutely. Ray was a difficult personality. Why, you know, complicated man, not Mr. Cozy, and I'm sure without Ray around, no reason for Robbie and Densmore to not get along.
0: Yeah. I used to live in West Hollywood, one block below Sunset Boulevard. And I once took a too fast of a left turn onto Sunset and almost ran over Ray and Dorothy Manzarek. So I'm glad I didn't (laughs) take out a door (laughs) that time. But yeah.
1: (laughs) You've been with a lot of difficult people like you were friends with Ginger Baker, weren't you?
2: Uh, Yep. (laughs) There's a difficult man. Beware, Mr. Baker. (laughs) If you go on YouTube and check out Stuart Copeland, sacred grove and you will see me jamming with neil Peart, with stanley clark snoop dog and wow. whatever and one day ginger comes over and i got him on the drums <laughs> and he's all grumpy <laughs> he plays like about a minute which i had my cameras rolling and i'm accompanying him i it wasn't until i played back the tape that i realized what meter he was playing in <laughs> and uh there's a little clip on youtube of him and i for one minute i got one minute And uh, about a minute after that, the paramedics arrived and wanted to cart him off because he was having heart palpitations or something. Oh, oh my God. You know, it's truly, truly ancient. And they're trying to say, well, we have to take you down to have a look at you, sir. And he's like, fuck, oh, oh, fuck <laughs> off, fuck off. I no fucking ambulance. <laughs> fuck off oh, for you. hospital!" Oh. Oh,
1: Just so God. everyone knows, I Ginger did. Baker was the drummer of Cream, and he's kind of a notorious figure in, in that if you read anything, he disses pretty much every other drummer that ever lived except himself. And, his, yeah. and he was a fantastic drummer. Well, he was kind to me. Good. That's nice. He called
2: me young man. And uh, Ginger can call me whatever he wants.
1: He probably heard that Buddy Rich
0: asked for your autograph. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. You got the Buddy Rich armor. So Stuart, this has been so much fun. Thank and you. Honor. Uh, it's so great. Where can our listeners keep up on your prolific projects? They are just never ending.
2: Um, Instagram, Stuart Underline Copeland. And uh, I've got a team who pulls up stuff, and I just do the captions. Uh, and occasionally, I'll take a picture of my damn self and post that. I would say Instagram. But check out my YouTube site.
0: Right. And that, that's under your name as well, correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Lots of really wonderful things there.
1: Yeah. It's really great. You're like such a presence on YouTube at TikTok too, aren't you? Yes.
2: But that's by remote control because I disapprove.
1: <laughs>
2: uh, but I can't ignore it. So uh, every now and then I'll go on and see how I'm doing and occasionally I have to create content specifically for them because one good thing about them is that their algorithms are humans. They decide as humans, sentient beings, what they're going to run and not run, which is good rather than an algorithm, but bad because you've got to kiss their ass.
1: That old trick yes we've got the lips for it in the music business for sure (laughs) you can't
2: kiss the ass of an algorithm
1: (laughs) not yet just wait
2: we'll put ai
1: on it we'll figure that out too listeners
0: how best to sum up stewart copeland he's a container ship full of stories he's a fire hose of fun he's a big bang of well i don't know big bangs as one of the greatest living drummers should be that was really special Thanks to Tarquin Gotch and Katie Johnston from Stewart's Management Company, as well as Grace Fleischer and Maddie Eventoff at Shorefire Media for helping us to set up our time with Stewart. Much appreciated. Too Much Effing Perspective is a Milwaukee Talkies original. Our editor is Gretchen Kilby. Our music composer is J.K. Harrison. Please follow us on Instagram at TMEPShow. Visit our website at TMEPShow.com to sign up for our mailing list. And find our other episodes featuring rock stars, comedians, and entertainment luminaries on Apple
1: Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen. Although it would be as great as having armadillos in our trousers, this podcast is not affiliated with This Is Spinal Tap, and no person or entity connected with the film has sponsored or endorsed its content. The podcast is not affiliated, sponsored, or licensed by Authorized Spinal Tap LLC or Century of Progress Productions. T-M-E-P show folk, this is Alan. I want to end the show a little differently this week. Back in the mid-1990s, my band, The Falling Willendez, did an interpretation of the police song Every Little Thing She Does Is Magic that appeared on a 1980s compilation album out of Milwaukee called Gag Me With a Spoon. I'm going to play that cut right now. Why don't you drop me a line at hello at T-M-E-P dot com or on Instagram and let me know what you think of it. I'd appreciate it. And you know, every breath you guys take is magic to me. Oh, I try so hard to tell her
4: radio stations in america profiles the wrath of the buzzard proh files subscribe now wherever you get podcasts evergreen podcast network